Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Claudia Sam is a jewel. She's out on Twitter creating a firestorm each and every day, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. She is fearless about what's in the textbooks and what we're doing right now that is not in the textbooks. Claudia, the question the Twitterverse wants to know, are we practicing monetary, uh, modern monetary theory? That's not the way that I would describe it. I think, honestly, as you put it, the, the textbooks haven't been written. I mean, we really are, are trying to figure this out. We are living both a sea change in monetary policy. We have a new Federal Reserve framework that is frankly being tested as we speak. And we've seen fiscal policy in fits and starts really shift in terms mm -hmm. of putting support into the economy. You put those two things together, this is not a constellation that we've seen before and the ink is not dry on it either. So this is a very fluid moment. There's a lot to be proud of with this. I mean, we have a recovery that is just so right. much better and faster than last time. Help me with the word measured in maybe a Bank of England that was mini measured. Arthur Burns used to make big moves when he made a move. He's smoking the pipe and the pipe smoke coming up and everybody interpreting what the pipe smoke meant. Greenspan invented measured. Are we measured now in our movements or potential movements? I think the big change for the Federal Reserve right now is the their communication policy has become so much stronger, given the interest rates are a lot lower than they were in either of those two past uh, uh, Fed, Fed times. So they have, I don't think the word measured is what they're thinking of, it's that no surprise. Right. We have watched them do so much messaging and that you don't want to do big moves unless you have to. We know from March of 2020, the Fed is more than willing to just move when it needs to. But at a moment like this, they want to bring everybody along. Jay Powell spends yeah. a lot of time trying to explain to us what they're thinking and where they're headed. Claudia, how much are you taking a signal from the fact that Jay Powell is reiterating some of the economists who are decrying the inflationary push that we're seeing as something that you have to address versus the bond market, which is saying it's not a problem? Well, this also goes very much to the communication. We need and we need to believe that we have a Fed that is awake at the wheel. And they absolutely are, but it is important that they address some of those individuals and say, hey, like we are watching this, we see it, and we are deeply concerned. I worked at the Fed for over a decade. They are always deeply concerned about inflation. That's what the central bank is there in part to do. I think they've just been so much more explicit in trying to help the outside world understand the risks, and the risks have been shifting, right? It is absolutely appropriate how their communication and what they're telling us has moved over time. The world is moving. But Claudia, how much is this a shift in perception and a shift in ideas at the Federal Reserve? How much is this something more political? There have been some massive pivots done by Fed Chair Jay Powell. The fact that he thought that it was appropriate to keep the bond purchases where they were, that the tapering uh, was where it was, and suddenly we're doubling it and talking about how everything looks very hot. The labor market, we want to get to full participation. We want to see the labor market participation rate uh, go up. Now, we don't even know what that means. It's not going to be the same 
economy. This is a vastly different Fed Chair Jay Powell than what we heard. Do you read something different into this? Right. So I think this question is interesting about the politics. I actually wrote my Substack post right before the meeting on this question because I was I found it interesting that this has some credence in in some circles. The Fed is is a politically independent in its policy decisions. It's in Washington D.C. Politics are there. And it, it has gotten pulled into some of these very complicated issues about, uh, especially in labor markets, like how inclusive and the diversity, and it's tough. But the thing is, and I really do believe that the decisions they are making are being mm -hmm. driven by what's happening in the economy. <clears throat> and unfortunately, the Fed is setting up for this tough trade-off between inflation is staying high, we need to get that back down, and we want to get every worker back to work. So they are going to face this trade-off. Frankly, they haven't done a great job of explaining how that works in the new framework, but I don't, I, they're pushed around by politics. Politics plays them, as I'm sure we'll see with the next set of the appointments, mm, yeah. but I don't think that's what's driving what Jay's doing in the Fed. Talk to us, Claudia, quickly about where the importance of an inclusive labor market dominates for the next month or so, because for now we seem to not worry that black unemployment is still at 7%, whereas general unemployment is at about 4 We put more of a focus on price stability, helping particularly the lower income parts of the industry and indeed of the labor market. Right. I think it's right to be focused on next year, but it's important we step back, look at what the inflation numbers are right now, and the Fed funds rate is still at zero. Like This is a Fed that is incredibly focused on both sides of their dual mandate in a way that we would not have seen even a few years ago. So what does that mean in terms of being inclusive and the broad-based? I think this a big discussion, and it came up on <clears throat> Wednesday, is of the people who left the labor force, who is coming back? And how quickly can they come back? Right? And, I, and that's going to, yeah. I think, be the big debate going <clears throat> into next year. Claudia, I'm depressed. When it came out 32 years ago, <laughs> I read every word of Heilbronner and Bernstein, the debt and the deficit. I must have sold Peter Bernstein 30 copies of that book where I just said to people, shut up and read this so we don't panic. Douglas Cass, a wonderful trader this morning, an investor, asked you about modern fiscal theory. From your monetary uh, uh, view, back to the classic book by Heilbronner and Bernstein, what is our modern fiscal theory? Yeah. Uh, well, so I, I wish I had that answer for you. I think right now it's, it's the where, I mean, we're going to talk so much about the Fed, but when we look out years to come, what's happening in Congress right now is where the debate should be. And I worry that when we get like, there's the models and exactly how much debt and what can we spend, it gets past the, we move past the, well, what are we trying to accomplish? What types of investments are we trying to make in our infrastructure and in our people, in our planet? And that, in the end of the day, those discussions are right. going to loom so much larger. And I, do, I worry that that theory right. is going to be written after the fact. Claudia Sam, brilliant. Thank you so much for the Jane Family uh, Institute. On the equity markets, Anahan joins us now from Wells Fargo. Always wonderful, particularly on the dynamics that she observes uh, within the markets. You got a single sense, and I'm not going to mince words about it. You say high quality is where to be. We're hearing that from Wells Fargo. We're hearing that from Goldman Sachs.
Others disagree. What is the risk of acquiring low-quality shares? Well, as we get more late into the cycle, that textbook fundamentals, as you see credit liquidity decrease, you see monetary accommodation decrease, this puts pressure on the funding markets. And we've seen time and again that equity volatility is tied to credit and rate volatility. So as you see credit spreads widening, we expect more equity volatility. And those are the kind of situations where we're not particularly fully risk off here, but we need a little more protection and we like it in the form of high quality. So we would reduce our exposure to the very high levered companies, look for a little wider profit margins, a little higher ROEs in that kind of scenario. So Anna, does that just mean to go into big tech? Actually, I would shy a little away from certain parts of the tech market there. What we are still a, a proponent of here is cyclicality. And right now, as you get with yields rising, you get monetary accommodation coming off, we've seen what happens to the very high flyer growth at any price kind of sectors. They're in a little bit in trouble, and we think that kind of volatility or that pullback isn't over yet. So rather than just pour into tech as a whole, I think you look market across, look broadly, and look for somewhere where we can get high quality, but at the right price. This is important, especially because a lot of people cheered after the Fed's hawkish tilt and the market's response, which was, it's all good, copacetic, keep on partying. And then yesterday we saw the Nasdaq in particular and big tech stocks tumble. Is that more of what's to come? Is that a signal of what we can expect in terms of an even potential correction in big tech? Well, I think none of us really want to leave the party too soon. We don't want to miss out. But at the same time, we are realizing that some parts of tech have run very hot. And in that scenario, as you start thinking about what's going to happen next year as potential for us, we're projecting multiple, multiple compression. You want to look at what really has run hot and maybe take some off the table here. So you may be seeing a little bit of those dynamics. And again, even though we're coming from a place of very liquid markets and a lot of accommodation, the directional change and the pull forward in the taper schedule and the potential rate hike schedule, this is a velocity change here we're seeing. And that's really what the market is digesting. Anna, I don't want to pit strategist versus strategist, but I'm reading the note, of course, from Bank of America's chief investment strategist, Michael Hartnett, saying he still is remaining bearish until we get full-blown capitulation in the market. He is risk-averse, and I'm interested in your perspective as to what makes you feel that markets should still go into equities at this point. Where is market sentiment? Where is positioning at from your perspective? Well, it's interesting. We have actually seen capitulation in some parts of the equity market. Uh, earlier this year, you saw that investors reduced China exposure. That was too much of a painful thing for portfolio managers throughout the year. And that was reduced. You also saw that there was a lot of crowding of some of the tech favorites. And some of that is being washed out here. One of the reasons why we've seen so much pressure on the tech parts of the market. But going forward, we don't think it's time to give up on equities as a whole because we still think that there is a game to be played in cyclical parts of the market. But that's why we're actually barbelling that with quality here. We're not saying risk on, but we're not heading for the hills either. How do you find mid cap quality? I'm sorry, Caroline. Excuse me. I'm sorry, Caroline. Go ahead. Oh, no. Thank you, Tom. Such a gentleman. I'm interested in. Anna, your perspective on, does the U.S. remain the only game in town? Do you still see U.S. equities outperform the likes of Europe, even though Europe has a little bit more value to it? 
Well, in the near term, we like the U.S. because we have a little more clarity on it. But what will be very important next year is where different nations are in their tightening cycle. Because as you start to see sort of divergence or different timing on when people are hiking versus when that accommodation is coming off, that's going to also have a big impact, not just on equities, but really the underlier here, which is the currency markets. So these are the kind of things we need to consider going into next year. And there may be more opportunities that open open up later in the back half of 2022, uh, depending where we are in our tightening cycle. Anna, thank you so much. Anna Han with us uh, today with Wells Fargo. Greatly appreciate that. Right now, we begin a three-hour discussion with Andrew Peckhoff. He's professor and virologist at uh, Johns Hopkins with Professor Breyer. And, and we got eight ways to go here, Andrew. But I want to go to the cold, hard reality that the president of the United States knows and that the United States has a vaccination rate published out at 61 percent and a nation as beleaguered as Italy has a vaccination rate out at 85 percent. How far behind is the look that we seem to be very far behind? Well, you know, we we were one of the first countries to roll out vaccines in uh, mass, and it seems like ever since we started to roll out the vaccines, we've fallen behind other countries that are able to not only more effectively do it, but also convince their population about the benefits of vaccination um, in many different ways. And I think that as we move through these variants, we saw this with Alpha, we now we saw it with Delta, and now we're seeing all of the signs with Omicron of the same thing, which is these viruses are moving through the population. Vaccines are protecting us from severe disease, but it's the unvaccinated population that's really going to be the population that's going to put a stress onto our healthcare system because these viruses are spreading incredibly efficiently and they're going to find unvaccinated people and the disease in unvaccinated people is yet to be really determined how virulent this virus is. Dr. Pekosh, the uptick in cases that we're seeing in New York City in particular, is that the Omicron wave actually happening here? really difficult to differentiate uh, between what's happening with a Delta surge, which certainly was going on across many parts of the U.S. Uh, just after Thanksgiving, and what Omicron is doing. Um, our sequencing efforts here in the U.S. lag behind a little bit the efforts that are going on in the U.K. and South Africa, so we're not hearing about the Omicron cases as quickly as we should. It's quite possible that um, the surges that we're seeing now are con contributed to by Omicron because the data coming out of Europe is showing that this virus is at least as good as Delta, if not better than Delta, at transmitting in populations that have some immunity even. How important, Dr. Pekosh, is the psychological impact of a lot of people who got vaccinated, they did exactly what they thought that they should do, and they're still getting sick. Everybody knows somebody like that as this Omicron variant starts to spread. How much does that discourage people from both getting vaccinated and from listening to health officials by saying, you'll be protected if you just take these measures? Yeah, it's important to get the message of primarily protection from severe disease is what we're seeing these vaccines doing quite well. And that has actually held true even with Alpha, even with Delta, and now with Omicron as well, too. So I think the realistic expectation for people is that 
COVID-19 is looking more and more like seasonal influenza. The vaccines are going to prevent some level of infection, but not all. But they're going to make a really big dent in terms of the severe disease. And that is probably where six months, a year from now, we're going to really be settling in in terms of managing this disease. Vaccines will limit cases and disease severity. We'll have treatments like antivirals that also will limit disease severity. And we'll be dealing with this as a virus similar to influenza. We're not at that place yet, but that's where we will be in a few months. And there is an element, though, in the here and the now that we've heard from Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer of England, about the worry that eventually hospitalizations may well run much higher than they have done previously because we're about to come together as families, because once again, we're exhausted from the mental strain of all of this. We want to be together. We're going to put the most vulnerable at risk. Meanwhile, the U.S. very much standing by its stance that they want to see families together for the festive period. What do you make of that risk at the moment? Well... There is a way to manage this risk. It does take engagement and it does take effort. Uh, testing is an important part of this. Uh, the rapid testing and some and other forms of testing like saliva testing are really good methods to make to keep monitoring for infections. Um, mm. Making sure that that you understand your gatherings and your workplaces and maintain some level of social distancing there is also important. There are ways to manage the risks of uh, of transmission right now, but. What's important to note is more cases will equal more hospitalizations, and so we have to really make an effort to limit cases because irrespective of whether Omicron is more or less virulent than Delta, if it causes more cases than Delta, it will cause more severe cases than Delta. Talk to me quickly about why I can walk into a library, into a pharmacy anywhere in the UK and get a lateral flow test and in fact have many ahead of the Christmas period to be able to ensure that we're remaining safe. But is it right that it feels much harder to do that in the United States and for what reason is that? It is most definitely harder to do that in the United States. I think there wasn't an emphasis early on about using these at-home tests, and and it wasn't a real understanding of how to use these at-home tests effectively. Um, other countries have moved forward with that and are able to use these tests effectively. I think we're starting to learn that here in the U.S., but now it becomes a, basically a supply and demand uh, problem. Now people are trying to get these these tests here, but we simply don't have the supply to meet the demand that's here right now. I assume that will change with some of the pandemic plans that President Biden's administration is putting forward. But for the short term, mm -hmm. people are really desperate for these tests and not being able to get them in many parts of the United States. Dr. Pekos, thank you so much. If I don't speak to you before the end of the year, thank you for your support and your education of all of us on radio and television worldwide. He is with Johns Hopkins at University. Helene Becker, once again, our senior research analyst at Cowan, working with Kaivon Rumor. The airline franchise at Cowan has been globally respected for decades. We're thrilled that Ms. Becker could join us this morning. Helene, I want to get away from the stories and the angst of the moment and do Sellside 101. Your single best buy right now is United Airlines. They are down 19% a year since Valentine's Day of 2020. Why, when the airlines get off the mat, is United going to be the winner? 
Yeah, that's a good question. Thanks. And thanks for having me, Tom. So our view on United is that they're leveraged to international and they're leveraged to corporate. About half their revenue comes from international roots and the other half from domestic. Um, and what we're, we're seeing two things and, and actually Delta seeing this too. And, and it, we could easily have gone with Delta, although they're less, less exposed to international. Um, the key element is that uh, consumers are buying up into premium economy or into premium seats because the price points between the two have narrowed and people find that they like having that little extra room or a little extra comfort in the front of the cabin. They get extra miles um, with the more expensive tickets uh, and they, um, which I think is important to people, right? Because they work towards free tickets and upgrades faster. Um, But with United, they're adding a lot of service this summer, especially into leisure international destinations, places that have never really had um, Mm -hmm. international nonstop service from from Mm -hmm. the U.S., like Palma de Mallorca, Bergen, and Norway. Mm. Let me ask you a points guy question, because the points guy, Brian Kelly, worships at the altar of Helene Becker. Are miles (laughs) going to matter? Are miles going to matter after the pandemic? Yes, I think so. I think, and I think that's why you see card usage increasing and card acquisition increasing. One of the things that United said on their last conference call and Delta said yesterday on Investor Day was that they're seeing increases in the number of cards that are being issued. And I think it's a combination of millennials um, who weren't supposed to own anything and now own stuff and, and have kind of bought all the things that they need to buy. So we're probably going to see an increase in service spend um, once the pandemic becomes endemic, which we also think is going to happen you know, sometime in the first or second quarter of next year, um, or at least people will realize it. And, and then I think we're going to see more people travel. And of course, if you spend on the card, um, to buy your things, right? If you're buying clothing to go back to the office or you're buying washing machines or dryers to, you know, replace broken ones or to, or to kit out your house, yeah. um, then I think you, you are going to want those miles so that you can earn free trips quicker. In the meantime, Helene, we still are dealing with Omicron, which a lot of people are saying has not fully been priced in. What's your view when you take a look at United and Delta uh, and, and American Air that have lost more than 20% of their values <laughs> since the beginning or the middle of November? Yeah, so it's priced in. I think okay. I think investors who think it's not priced in are probably being short-sighted. It is absolutely being priced in, in our view. The stocks have underperformed, to your point, quite a lot just in the last four weeks in an environment where we're seeing really good strength. I mean, we saw record Thanksgiving traffic. Domestic leisure is above pre-pandemic levels. Pricing is above fourth quarter 19 levels. We are going to see very strong revenue. Um, this quarter. And it's going to be partially offset by inflationary pressure and wages and fuel for sure. Mm. But fuel costs aren't even as high as we thought they were going to be. So they've come down a little bit. And I think going into the first quarter, what we've said is we think that after the first week of January, we'll see about three to four weeks of a slowdown. And then we think mid-February, right? So around President's Day week, um, we'll see a pickup. And then we think that's going to continue through the summer. 
It's interesting that here in the UK and Europe, some of the airlines have been clamouring for more government support, wringing their hands at the latest need for PCR tests to travel internationally, saying that's going to wreak havoc on their Christmas bookings and winter bookings. What real-time time data are you looking at? Is it always about the TSA data or can you get a feel for the flow of bookings and how, how real they are or how ca many cancellations we're starting to see? Yeah, so that's um, that's a good question. We rely on TSA data number first and foremost because that gives us the best um, read on what's happening exactly today. And and not only TSA, by the way, we get the data from Eurocontrol as well. And then in terms of the forward bookings, we rely on ARC, ARC. Um, our core uh, gives us the numbers every week, so we rely on that as well. Mm. We we don't you know we don't have a credit card company that we're with whom right. we're associated. So we rely on that. Elaine, not enough time, but I've got to ask you this news-driven question. Airbus is cleaning Boeing's clock. What are they talking about in Chicago and Seattle today to write the Boeing ship? Well, you know, that's Kai's um, purview. And I'm asking I, you. And, I don't have Kai and, um, on, so I'm asking you. <laughs> so, so I think the key element is getting the 787s delivered again. That's number one. And I think the other big issue is getting mm. the Maxes out there and getting them in the air again, um, which is okay. happening. I've, I've flown that Max a few times now and, and just love it. It's a yeah. great it's a great plane, in my opinion. Helene Becker, Kai Von Rumer, they're at Cowan. What a duo on aviation that we all care about. Helene, thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.